If you have a Bible with you, we're actually we're going to be looking at John chapter six, verses sixty through seventy-one. I told you last week that in my final sermons that I would be preaching the the rest of the time I'd just be doing the I am's of Jesus. And as soon as I looked on Monday, what came after the Bread of Life passage, I thought, oh, I can't skip that passage. And so I'm making no promises at this point. <laughs> I looked and I said, man, our church needs to hear this. So, you know, you'll see what you get when you get here. <laughs> It'll be in John, though. So from John chapter 6, verse 60, hear the word of God. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that, it, that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who were those who, were, who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I do pray this morning that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf, that you would make the gospel clear, that you would bring life through the words of Jesus. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen and amen. So I rarely, rarely do this, but um, I'm going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you guys, when you were kids, had a magic eight ball or at least knew someone who did? Okay. Remember what the whole point of a, ma a Magic 8-Ball, a little history of the Magic 8-Ball, it's pretty interesting. Magic 8-Ball was invented by a man named Albert Carter in 1944, and he was the son of a clairvoyant. Now, if you don't know what a clairvoyant is, a clairvoyant is someone who thinks they can speak to the dead. Um, sometimes clairvoyants might be fortune tellers, they might be people who read cards, they're into, they're into like spiritualism and, and the occult. And so it makes sense that her son would try and like fast track that. <laughs> And make a device that you can just shake and get a right answer, right? If you don't, if you're not familiar with the magic eight ball, you've been under a rock for 80 <laughs> years. But nonetheless, basically, it's an eight big eight ball that has 10. It has, it has a 20-sided cube in it, and 10 of the responses are positive responses. Five of them are negative, and five of them are indifferent. So. For example, you might be a young guy saying, wow, should I ask this girl to the prom? And you shake the thing, and it says, I think not. And then you're like, well, let me try again. Should I take her to the prom? Doubtful. Should I ask her to the prom? Certainly. Okay, I'll do it. You see how that works? 
Like, like I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, the Magic 8-Ball was only as good as, I, as, as my willingness to trust it, and I never did. Like, should I, should I ask Judy to marry me? No. Mm. Should I ask her to marry me? Uncertain. Should I ask her? Yeah, you, you basically, the problem with the Magic 8-Ball is on one hand it's fun, on the other hand, all of us, we just keep shaking until we get what we want. Am I right? That's, that's how we are. And you could use anything. I remember when I was a kid, I would say, oh, should I do this or that? And I would shoot baskets. Should I ask this girl out? And I'd say, if I make this basket, I'm going to ask her out and I'd miss. Well, I'd sit there all day until I made a basket. Because the thing is, I wanted what I wanted. And we, I just wanted affirmation for that. So if you look at the, when we jump into the passage today, what Jesus is dealing with is a bunch of people who, who he basically interrupts them shaking the magic eight ball. That up to this point, remember, crowds have been following Jesus. They followed him because he, he did this miracle. He fed 5,000 people on the Sea of Galilee, and then he crossed over to Capernaum, and they were so hungry still, they still wanted bread from him, and so they followed him over to Capernaum. They wanted two things. They basically wanted free food, bread, baked goods, whatever you want to call it, and they wanted a political messiah. And they, they, weren't, they weren't negotiating that. That's what they wanted. That's what they went to Jesus. And if they would have had a magic eight ball, they would have said, do we want what this guy's offering? He's offering us spiritual bread and to be a spiritual Messiah. And they would have shaken it and said, nope. And they would have just kept shaking until they got what they wanted. What Jesus does is before they can do any of that, before they can engage any of that, he basically like smashes the eight ball with his claims. He smashes it and basically puts the, the disciples in his day and, frankly, us in a position of having to decide yes or no without shaking the eight ball. It's actually up to us. What are you going to do? What are we going to do? Are we going to follow Jesus or are we going to walk away from Jesus? That's what we're basically going to look at this morning. You see, Jesus made the, many messiahs came in Jesus' day. We tend to forget that, that when Jesus came as a messiah, he was one of many or at least one of many who claimed to be messiahs, and all of them were, were, were political messiahs. And there were politicians, just like today's politicians are. Politicians rarely make claims about themselves. They make claims about other people, right? I'm going to get rid of the Romans. I'm going to re reform Judaism. I'm going to lead you back to this, or I'm going to do that. Jesus comes, and he's not a political messiah because he's the actual messiah, because he's a personal messiah. He makes claims about himself. And you, you, either have to, you either have to make a decision about them or you ignore them. But even ignoring them is a decision. So we're going to look at two things basically this morning. We're going to look at basically the scandal of Jesus and then we're going to look at a prudent profession. Look at verse 60. It says this. It says, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now, a couple things that, that need to be clarified in this text before we go in. That, that John is making a pretty clear differentiation here between disciples, what I'm going to call disciples with a small d, and disciples with a big d. Disciples with a small d are people in this context who just followed Jesus around because they got something from him. They followed him around because he gave maybe free bread, or they followed him around because he was an interesting teacher. Remember, they didn't have movies, they didn't have Netflix, and they, they didn't really have books. And so if, a, if an interesting guy came around, you'd follow him around and listen to him. 
So the disciples followed Jesus around, but they weren't committed to him in any meaningful way. These small d disciples at the beginning, that's compared or opposed to the 12 who Jesus mentions after. The 12 would be big d disciples, people who have actually committed themselves to Jesus. And of course, Jesus' mission constantly in the Gospels is to, to get people from being small d disciple to big d disciple, right? To actually committing themselves to him. So that, that's who these people are. They're just sort of the crowd. And in some sense, they're like people in church who just go to church for social reasons or just come to church. You know, maybe you moved to town. I mean, you know, I was, I married into a family of realtors and, you know, so I heard, you know, like, well, if you want to start a business, go to church, right? Because there's a lot of people there who need to buy houses and stuff. It's, it's, a, it's a fishing pool. It's a great place to be. So there are people like that who go to church, but they don't really know Jesus. Same kind of thing, small d disciple. And notice it says, when many of his small d disciples heard it, <clears throat> they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it or who can listen to it? Now, what's important to get here, too, is this, what they're talking about. The this saying is hard not because it's difficult to understand. They call the saying hard because it's difficult to tolerate. In other words, it's not that they don't understand what he's saying. The problem is that they understand exactly what he's saying. And understanding exactly what he's saying, they basically, the words say, when they say, who can listen to it, you could also translate that as, who could tolerate this? This is, a, this is an intolerable thing that Jesus is saying that, that he's actually claiming. It reminds me of the Mark Twain quote. Mark Twain, who was, wasn't a Christian, but he said at one point, he said, you know, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand. And that's what's going on here. When they say this is a hard saying, they're not saying it's difficult to, to comprehend. They're saying it's diff difficult to obey. It's difficult to, to follow after. It's difficult to tolerate. And it says in the next verse, it says, And they grumbled. Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? So we know that, that they were struggling with it because Jesus knows that they're grumbling. They're complaining about this. That they're coming to Jesus to get things, and he's actually giving them something completely different than what they want. And so they're complaining, and Jesus says, do you take offense at this? Now, it's, it's interesting, the word offense there is actually the word scandal. Are you scandalized by this? Is this against your, like, your mental grid of what is appropriate? And when he says, are you, are you scandalized by this, what is the this he is talking about? Well, remember earlier in the text between when he says, I am the bread, and when he actually, what he's talking about now. Let me just read to you some of that. In verse 47, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Down to verse 58, he said, This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever.
forever. So when Jesus says, are you scandalized by this? All of that comes into play. Remember even earlier than that, some of these people, they were looking at each other and they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Is this a carpenter? Like what in the world is he talking about? So this that Jesus is talking about is that number one, I, I, Jesus, came down from heaven. And the bread that you thought you were going to get from Moses, guess what? I am the bread. I am the bread of life. And whoever feeds upon me will never die. And what is the bread? My bread is my flesh that I give for the life of the world. And then the last, the doozy, unless you feed upon my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does feed upon me, whoever does drink my blood, whoever does believe in me, I, Jesus, will raise him up on the last day. What do you think about that? Are you scandalized by that? And I love what he says next, because he says, he says, you take offense at this? He says, then what if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He says, if you're scandalized by all that, wait till you see what's coming. If you're scandalized by the fact that I will be crucified and die and my flesh will be given for the life of the world, wait until you see what comes after that when I am resurrected as the glorious Lord of all history. Wait till you see how all the world has changed. Wait till you see when the disciples are standing around and I ascend into heaven to where I was before. And you know what comes after that? I'll come back in the same manner. So it's, if you're scandalized now, you're going to be really scandalized in the end. Because remember what Paul says. He says, in the end, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. So Jesus is really sort of putting the screws to them. He's basically, he's making it, he's not making it easy for them. He is giving them the truth for them to decide what they are going to do with it. He continues on though. He says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and life but there are some of you who do not believe for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him and he said this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the father you see they're taking him they're taking him literally and Jesus is speaking metaphorically and spiritually but Jesus is also speaking exclusively you see, Jesus, is, Jesus doesn't say to them, I am a bread of life. I'm a way for you to have spiritual life. He says, I am the bread of life. And the bread, the bread that I give is my flesh, which is shed to give life to the world. He doesn't say, I'm one way among many ways. I'm not a way for you to have a relationship with the Father. I am the way for you to have a relationship with the Father. And when he says, basically, it's the spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. That basically looking at Jesus through the lens of the flesh or our sinful minds can't comprehend what he's saying. In other words, remember the Apostle Paul says, I think it's in Romans 7, that the sinful mind cannot, cannot, cannot obey God, nor will it. Because it is, it is in our sinfulness, in our brokenness, in the, because of the fall, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Remember, that's Ephesians chapter 2 says that. That we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. And in other words, what this chunk says from 63 to 65 is it shows the extent of our need for grace. Remember those shocking words? You, we, we look at Gospels like, like John, and we think that they should just be all about calling people to know Jesus and telling them it's up to you to choose 
And it says here that Jesus knew who was going to believe and who wouldn't believe. And Jesus said to them, this is why I told you that no one can come to the Father, no, come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And what's the point of that? Basically, it's this. And it's things that people don't like to hear in church, but it should be the thing that you want to hear every single Sunday. That your salvation and you, the security that you have in Jesus is not based on your choice of him, but rather it is based on his choice of you. If your salvation is based on your choice of him or your works or anything you have to do, you are sunk. You might as well just go home now. But if your choice, if your salvation and your security in the gospel is based in the fact that the Father has chosen you and the Father has done all the work through Jesus, his Son, you can rest in that and you can glory in that. Is it a mystery as to how that works? Absolutely. But it is a glorious mystery. One of the confessions of sins that we use that I, I wrote after reading a devotion by Charles Spurgeon, and he said that our hope is not in the fact that every time we get in trouble that we remember to look at the cross. Our hope is in the fact that whenever we get in trouble, God never forgets to look at the cross. God never forgets what Jesus has done for us because God has given us to the Son. And remember, Jesus says, no one can snatch the, the, those who the Father has given me. No one can snatch you out of his hand. That you are safe and secure in Jesus if you have trusted him. Because, not because of your work, but because of what he has done in you. And so the question is, um, well, the fact is that even our faith is a gift, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is by grace you are saved through faith. And this not of ourselves is the gift of God so that no one should boast. So the question, how do you respond to that? How will these disciples respond to that? Are they going to go, wow, that's awesome? Or are they going to go, mm, I was hoping for some bread. I was hoping for some politics. And it's too much for me. This is a hard saying. It's intolerable. By the way, if the sayings of Jesus, if Jesus' teaching is never intolerable to you, you're probably not paying very much attention to it. What is the response going to be? Verse 66, it says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So they just left. And it's just an interesting. I imagine Jesus turning to the 12 and saying, What are you guys going to do? How about you guys? And as a result of that question, he, he asks that. Verse 67, he, Jesus said to the 12, Do you want to go away as well? And what he receives in return is a prudent profession. Now, Peter answers. And one of the things that I love about Peter, if you've ever played baseball or maybe softball, when I was growing up, I played baseball all the way through high school. And on every team I ever played on, there was a guy who had, he, he, all he, he was usually a big guy, and he had one of two, he just swung for the fences every single time. Right? So every single at bat, he would stand up there, and he was just trying to knock it out of the park every single time, and he only ever did one of two things. He either knocked it out of the park or he struck out. And he struck out a lot more times than he knocked it out of the park, but somehow that never got through his head. And so every single time he swings through the fences. What I love about Peter is that's who Peter is. The Apostle Peter is that guy. Every time he opens his mouth, he's swinging for the fences. Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer and die. He says, oh, no, 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 over my dead body. You'll never die as long as I'm here. I'll lay down my life for you. Whiff. Before the crop crows three times, you will betray me. 
On the other hand, sometimes when he does hit, it's a home run. Remember Matthew 16, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Home run. This is one of the times where Peter hits a home run. He swings for the fences here, and he hits it. And it goes all the way out of the park. I mean, out, out, out of the park. What does he say? What is his profession? He basically, when Peter answers this question, he says four things about Jesus in his profession. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke, to Ju- spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he is he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. What are four things he says about Jesus? When he says, Lord, to, to whom shall we go? He's basically professing the uniqueness of Jesus. Peter and all of the rest of the apostles and everyone in the ancient Near East had a lot of options when it came to religion. They could have just stayed Jews. They could have been Pharisees. They could have been Sadducees. They could have been zealots. They could have been any number of Jewish people. They could have been part of the Qumran community. They could have been anything. They could have been Essenes. Or they could have followed some kind of Greek mystery cult or Roman religion. And Peter says of all these religions that are offered to us, and Jesus says, are you going to go too? Peter says, Lord, where else can we go? To whom else can we follow? There is only one person who is the Savior of the world. There is only one person who is the way, the truth, and the life. There are not many ways. At least if you're right, you're the bread of heaven, not everyone else. You're the light of the world, not everyone else. You're the good shepherd. You're the the resurrection and the life. Where else are we going to find any of that? That's a pretty pretty good profession, wouldn't you say? (laughs) To whom, where else should I go? And not only does he say that, But when he says, you have the words of eternal life, he's basically admitting and showing. Remember when we began to look at the Gospel of John, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. That Jesus doesn't just give the words of eternal life. Jesus is the Word of eternal life. And Jesus just doesn't tell people about the kingdom of heaven. He just doesn't say, hey, if you do this, this, and this, and this, you can get to that destination. That when Jesus speaks the word of God, he actualizes it. That when Jesus, when you speak, your words are life. Your, your word is what is used, the Holy Spirit uses to like move us and open our eyes. And like, where else are we going to get that? Number three, Peter says, we have, we all, we have believed and have come to know. Now it's interesting, what Peter has said here is exactly how faith works. Right, a lot of times... When I was a drug rep, I used to do this little thing with doctors, and I'd say, hey, I'd have a lunch, and I'd say, hey, hey, who believes in Bigfoot? And no one would put their hand up. I mean, there would always be like one guy in the back who'd sort of be like, yeah, I do. And I would say, why don't you believe? Why don't you believe? And they say, everyone would say, I believe it when I see it. And then, of course, I'd break out all this evidence, and then I would show them, like, that's how people say about my medicine, but my medicine works. How faith inevitably works is not, I'll believe it when I see it, but I will see it when I believe it. In other words, Jesus says, follow me. The question is, are you going to follow him or not? And once you follow him, then you begin to understand who he is. If you're trying to understand everything about God and everything about Jesus before you actually enter a relationship with him, you're never going to get there. Right? What if, let me ask you this. Those of you who have been married more than two weeks, 
If you knew everything about your spouse that you knew now beforehand, but didn't have any of the love that you have over 20 or 30 years, would you enter into that? My guess is you wouldn't. Because if we knew the truth, and, and, but the, the glorious thing about the gospel is Peter says, we have believed, so we decided we we're going to follow you. But in the course of following you, we actually have come to know that all these things that you say are true. Many of you know, I went through, this past summer, I went through a two-week therapy intensive. And in the, it's like, that's basically like 30 weeks of therapy in 10 days. And all the person did was remind me of God's faithfulness in my life that I have forgotten about. I came, I came to believe when I was 18 years old. I didn't really come to know until I was in my 50s by looking back and saying, wow, look at how faithful God has been to me. Peter says, we have believed and have come to know. And what have you come to know? That's the last thing here. He says, we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, what's interesting about Peter's profession there when he says, we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God is that Peter is the only human being in the whole Bible that uses that term about Jesus, that calls Jesus that. You know who else refers to Jesus as the Holy One of God? The demons. The demons. In other words, the demons in the spiritual realm who really know who Jesus is, who really know that he is the Lord of history who has become down and become incarnate in a man. When they see him, they say, the Holy One of God, scram. Peter says, we, have come, we, we believe and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That what we hear the demons say about you, that you are God incarnate, we have come to believe and know that. That's a pretty, that's a home run profession. That's a home run profession. And the question is, do you embrace that? Right? Jesus, by the way, just as a side note before I close here, Peter might have, when he said this, come across as a little cocky. Right? The way I read it, I'm pretty overwhelmed by it, so it sounds pretty sympathetic. The way Jesus responds, it's almost as if Peter was bragging. Because Jesus reminds him, remember, I chose you, you didn't choose me. Like all this stuff you're saying, you've got, even that is a gift to you. And one of you got, even in spite of all that, one of you will betray me. Sort of a downer, honestly, in the context of that home run profession, but who am I to question Jesus? The question is, where do you and I stand with this? How do you know, right? Jesus says, no one can come to me except the, the, unless the Father draws him. How do you know you're one of those people? How do you know you're one of the chosen, right? We are Presbyterian after all, the frozen chosen on top of that. How do you know? And I think the answer is pretty simple. You know, one of my favorite paintings is this painting uh, entitled The Woman Taken in Adultery by Rembrandt. It's painted in 1644. I'm only giving you a piece of it. The painting is enormous. It, I mean, it, 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 it is incredibly tall. I should have looked up how many feet it is, but it's incredibly, incredibly tall. And what is interesting about this painting, it's, a, it's, a, it's the story of the woman taken in adultery, right? In John chapter 8, which comes after this. I'm not going to preach it. But what has always amazed me about this picture, is, as I've sat there and just stared at it, is Rembrandt has caught this moment in time. You remember the, 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 the religious leaders brought this woman, they've caught her in adultery, and they've thrown her at Jesus' feet, and they basically said, we have caught her in adultery. What are you going to do about this? 
And then we, we know the story that Jesus kneels down and he begins to write in the sand with his fingers. Some people think he's writing their sins in the sand, you know, that kind of thing. And then he tells, stands and he says, woman, you're forgiven, go and sin no more. What is always so moving about this picture to me is he has caught the moment where she doesn't know how it's going to turn out. She just has her head down. And her life is in the hands of this rabbi. And she, she is just stuck with her head down. And I remember the first time I saw this, I started thinking about it. You want to scream, just look. Just look at him. And I know it sounds stupid because it's a painting, but nonetheless, look up, woman. Because if you look up at him, what you will find is mercy and grace and forgiveness and love and affirmation and approval. Everything you ever wanted and your sins will be gone. Just look up to him. How do you know? that you're one of God's chosen, look. Don't ponder how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Look up to Jesus and say, Jesus, am I one? And I promise you, if you look up and say that, the answer will be yes. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that, that all of us, as we spend our lives, it seems oftentimes in this state of this woman taken into adultery with her head down, wondering, and yet we know from the gospel that we have forgiveness. We know from the gospel that we have your approval. I pray that you would put it in our hearts and our souls this week. Whenever we feel down, whenever we feel discouraged, that we would look up and we would see the, the approving face of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen and amen.